dear Lord, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the opportunity to be here. And we just pray that you be glorified by all of our interactions this morning. Give all this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. Well, we've been going through church history uh, as, a, as an adult Sunday school class and gone through a lot of centuries of, of church history um, for this thing that was originally supposed to just be a semester. But we're in the age of revolution. We've gotten finished talking about the Civil War, and now we're talking about stuff going on in the world and in the church post-Civil War. Um, so where we left off last week, we, were, we said we are going to talk about the Great Sioux War. Is this directly related to church history? No, not necessarily this part, but it's important for American history to understand where this is going. But to understand the Great Sioux War, i got to go back to the Franco-Prussian War. Remember when we talked about that last week? For those of you that were here, the Franco-Prussian War. And it actually screwed up a lot of European financial interests in the United States as Germany and France fought. We couldn't rely on German silver coins like we had been. That had been a big backing for all of our money. And so what do we do? There's a huge debate going on between rural investors and the big city eastern investors. Do you have a silver standard? Well, it's a little iffy now. Do you go to a gold standard? Well, we haven't been doing that. Do you do a bimetallic thing where you do gold and silver? What's the most stable thing that you can do? This starts getting to be a big debate between the rural west, by west I mean like, you know, Illinois, this is west, between the rural west and the urban east, which is arguably about what the Wizard of Oz is about, right? It's all about the gold standard. Seriously. Okay. The sweet rural girl trying to make her way to the big city, but dodging all those, that evil eastern witch who's trying to do all this horrible stuff. So she follows this gold brick road to get where she needs to go. And if they ever step off the gold, bad stuff is going to go down. But now if you've actually read the book, if you've actually read the book, even if they stay on the gold path, bad stuff happens to all of her companions. Like there's holes and stuff like that and they trip into the holes and things. But it doesn't happen to Dorothy because she has magic shoes that help her sidestep all of that, right? In the book, the shoes were silver, not ruby. But the filmmakers decided to make them ruby because they thought it photographed better. And if you sit there and go, Kevin, I think you're reading into it. Frank Baum wrote about that kind of stuff a lot in his day job. This is his day job writing stuff for newspapers and stuff. He's constantly talking about this sort of political thing. Constantly writing poetry about McKinley. And, and the point is, is, he never specifically said this is what this is about, but since he was constantly using allegories in his other writings to talk about politics, you know, it actually does bear out. Anyway, point is, thanks to all this kind of stuff, thanks to the fact that you've got all sorts of European problems going on, we talked last week about the Great Chicago Fire. There was also a huge fire in Boston. All of a sudden, there's this huge economic panic in 1873. People are just losing everything right and left. The bottom is dropping up. Think of it as like a bubble popping of the, of the dot-com bubble. Everybody's losing their entire fortunes. So Congress says, tell you what, we just need to print some more money. Everybody's out of money. Print a bunch of money. We're going to print something called greenbacks. Have you ever heard the expression greenback? It's not backed by silver or gold. It's just money. 
people need more money, we'll make more money. Right? That's okay. You can do it that way, can't you? I'm not sure now it does either. So Grant says, nope. President Grant vetoes the legislation. He's like, I don't care if Congress is trying to pass this. 60 separate bills? No. Not happening. I refuse. Grant had been through personal loss. He had been dirt stinking poor. And he's like, no, 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 no. You don't make choices to get you through the short run that will hurt you in the long run. You weather the whole thing out. Now, this may or may not have anything directly to do with church history, but can you think why that might be important in a modern sense to understand why you stop and to wait? There's what gets us in the short run. Is this really what's going to help us in the long run? And I suppose that does actually help with, with Christianity, too, and, and with making decisions as a church. You go, wait, should I really do the things that make it simple for me in the short run, or should I do the things that actually have wisdom in the long run? Anyway, thousands of people lost their homes and businesses. A lot of people very upset with Grant. But all the economists and all the bankers said, kudos to you, that took some guts. Because you torqued off everybody else in the country, but arguably saved the economy by refusing to do what would have made everybody else happy. So, I don't know. I'm kind of a fan of Grant. Even though he gets kind of a bum rap, he goes, oh, he's a horrible president, and he was a lush as a, as a general. Actually, he wasn't the lush as a general, and he was actually made some good judgment calls as a president. He just wasn't popular in doing it. And by the time that they actually moved to the gold standard in 1879, all of a sudden the economy boomed back up, and everybody went, oh, he did the right thing. But a decade later, you know, said, yeah, Grant, we never liked him. He did stuff that made us mad, forgetting that they just got finished saying, oh, he did the right thing. But we're talking about the Sioux War. So anyway, in the midst of all this huge economic crisis, gold was discovered in the Sioux territories out west. Pardon me? Yeah, I remember reading that in the class. Yep, the Black Hills Gold Rush. By an expedition led by this dashing Lieutenant Colonel George Armstrong Custer. He had been a general at the end of the Civil War, but then he got taken back down to Lieutenant Colonel when he mustered out. But, so this guy... Pardon me? Yeah, anyway. So this guy finds gold, goes back and says, by the way, there's gold there. Let's not disturb the Indians. Uh, it's going to get out. The army tries to keep people out of the Indian lands, but people are panicked. People are starving. Their families are starving. They keep, there's all sorts of stories about people sneaking past the cavalry to get into the Black Hills territories to, to pan for gold, which, by the way, the Native American tribes didn't appreciate all that much. So Grant met with the tribal leaders, tried to buy the land for what would today be roughly $450,000. And the tribe said, well, no. You shoved us over here. You told us this is the only place we could be. Now, some tribes, that's where they were already. But other tribes got kind of shoved out there. They said, no, we're not selling. You just keep bumping us around. He said, well, you ought to go to, uh, you ought to, go to Oklahoma. Oklahoma's really good territory. They said, well, if Oklahoma's really good, you take it. Why push us? If it's this great, knock yourselves out. Go there. By 1876, whole tribes started leaving the reservations to take part in what was called the Sundance. I don't know if you're familiar with this at all. The whole idea of the Sundance was that you, you don't sleep for several days. You physically exhaust yourself. They would, they would take ropes hanging from a pole 
tie it to, to sharp bits of bone and shove it into your pecs and then pull as hard as you can. And the idea is, is that you do that for as long as you can before it rips through the skin. It's like, like a whole day of doing that. The combination of pain and exhaustion, lack of sleep, tons of drugs, all that together creates ecstatic visions. Because if you do that long enough, it's going to mess with your brain. The whole idea of the Sundance is you're going to get these ecstatic visions where the great spirits are going to tell you what you should do. A shaman named Sitting Bull said, I got a vision that we have to fight. And a chief named Crazy Horse said, yep, that's exactly what we need to do. And so they pulled all the tribes together saying, we need to, to fight this incursion, we need to come together. Independently, we're not strong enough to, to hold back, but maybe together we are. So the U.S. Army sent a couple hundred troops out there saying, you know, you need, the, the Indians are off the reservation. You need to go quell some problems. They had no idea that the tribes were actually massing by the thousands and organized. They figured if I send a couple hundred troops out there, I'll just say, go back to your reservations, and they always will, because that's what they've always done. Custer believed his Indian scouts. By the way, in general, the Indian scouts were pretty good, but maybe Indian scouts are not the best least biased sources of information on what the Indians are doing. In fact, the Indian scouts, <laughs> it should have been a little telling to them that as they went to the Little Big, to the little big one River, the Indian scouts were like, yep, there's only like a couple hundred Indians there, and started changing out of their, scout, out of their, their Western white clothes and into Native American clothes. They, literally, I mean, they're like, no, I'm not a spy, so I'm going to change back into my normal uniform. He's like, really should have been an indicator. Oh well. So they rode on to the Little Bighorn River, confident they had superior numbers and superior firepower, because that's what he thought in the first place. You're probably aware I teach critical thinking uh, in the summers. So just for a second, I'm going to let you guys in on the first day of critical thinking notes. This, this is notes from my very first day each year of critical thinking. True or false? Every action is logical. True. Depending on how you define it. Everyone acts and reacts based on what made sense to them at the time. Even if you sit there and you say, oh no, the little green man on the end of my nose is the one who told me to do this. Okay, why would you think there's a little green man on the end? Why would you do it? Well, he's always been writing the text. It seems logical. It might be kooky, but it seemed logical to them at the time. So, let's do, let's do an argument here. First point, we are sure that there aren't many Indians at the Little Bighorn. If that's what you believe, in and of itself, you trust your scouts. If you're sure there aren't many Indians, and if you wouldn't need Gatling guns unless there were, you know what a Gatling gun is? It's an old machine gun. Yeah. And if you wouldn't need Gatling guns unless there were a lot of Indians, because if there's only a handful of Indians, you wouldn't need this. And if you don't want to drag heavy guns around, if you don't need them, if all those are true, then logically, you should leave the Gatling guns back here with the wagons, right? Was that conclusion logical? Yes. Absolutely. Was it correct? <clears throat> Why? That premise is wrong. There weren't not a lot of Indians. There were a lot of Indians there. So can a conclusion be valid and yet incorrect? Yes. People talk about a valid argument. When we say valid, what we mean is, what we mean is the structure is sound. The argument structure is sound. This argument structure is sound, but it's totally wrong. 
because the pieces are wrong. Can a conclusion be valid and yet incorrect? Absolutely. Can a conclusion be invalid and yet correct? Well, Green Man on the end of my nose tells me you need to drive on the right side of the road. Okay, in point of fact, he's right, but I, I don't think there actually is a little Green Man on the end of your nose. So at least on some level, every action is logical in that it came from a conclusion based on a premise. It made sense to the person making the decision. So the issue isn't if people are logical, but if you think carefully about your seemingly logical conclusions, right? We call that careful process critical thinking, which is why I teach a class on critical thinking. Too many people go, yeah, that's right, I need to learn to think logically. Like, oh, you already think logically, just do it badly. I do it badly, we do it badly, but we think logically. Okay, Custer wasn't careful and he didn't think critically. That's a key issue with Custer. So when a couple of hundred cavalrymen met a couple of thousand Native Americans, they got slaughtered, right? And so the newspapers go on and on about it. They're like, oh, it's a massacre. They were valiantly standing up again. Like, well, they were trying to push people back to the reservation so that they could get them to leave the reservation so we could take their gold. It's not the most noble fight ever. But since public opinion totally got galvanized by this, all of a sudden, the army, the Indian agencies, everything started cracking down on Native American tribes. Even the friendly tribes, because they were thinking, well, even if we gave stuff to the friendly tribes, the bad guys could take it from them, or they could trade with them, or what have you. So we totally need to say, anybody, anybody who's a Native American, we don't trust. Anybody who's a Native American, we can't help. 99% of the stuff that we tend to think of as the Indian agencies being bad, being corrupt, being cruel to Native Americans happened after the Battle of the Little Bighorn River. Because everybody in the United States went, that's it. Now we're all torqued off at anybody who is a person of color, who's a Native American here. I'm not saying that there wasn't corruption beforehand, but as we've been talking about up to this point, most of that has been pretty good. It's been fairly strongly regulated by the federal government. Everything is out the window now because everybody's mad now. And by the way, I don't know if you've noticed, but when emotional, he stopped critically thinking, right? Okay. So tribes were given the order to cease all kinds of hostilities. And by that, I mean, sell us the land, you who have been dragging your feet. As part of your hostilities, we're going to say your refusal to sell the land to the federal government is hostility. If you do not cease your hostility, you will starve because we will stop sending you rations and you live out in the middle of stinking nowhere. And you can't leave the reservation. If you leave the reservation, we'll shoot you. There's no food on the reservation and we will not bring you food. That's fine. So most tribes capitulated, which is not necessarily a good thing. Next few years, horrible nastiness goes on. Brutal attacks by the U.S. Army and and attacks by the Native American tribes, mostly related to the Lakota. The, the, their, the Sioux is this large nation that's broken up into a bunch of smaller ones. The main ones are the Lakota, the Dakota, and the Nakota. Anyway, most of them are related to this. For instance, November of 1876, in response to Little Bighorn, the army caught up with one band of Cheyenne who fought at the Little Bighorn, led by a guy named Dullknife. They attacked the village, they forced the people to leave their homes, uh, leave their clothes, leave their blankets, and flee into the frozen wilderness, because it's, it's November. 
on the high plains. So yeah, it's really, really stinky cold. Soldiers, amongst all that stuff, found all the articles that they had stolen from the dead bodies of the, of the cavalrymen at the Little Bighorn. So all the soldiers are like, no, this is why you can't take your stuff with you, because half your stuff is our stuff. And think about it. If your family member got killed and the, in World War II and the Nazis took their stuff, wouldn't you want the stuff back? Some Nazi who killed your grandfather is sitting there enjoying the photograph of your grandmother. You'd go, I want that back. You don't get to have that. So when they found all that stuff, the soldiers went bonkers. Started slaughtering people, took all the stuff, refused to let them take anything, killed 50 Cheyenne. More poignantly, 11 infants froze to death out in the wilderness because they had nothing with them. Both sides said, we've got the moral high ground. Native Americans said, how could you do this? The, Americans, the, the, the American soldiers said, how could you do this? And it just kept escalating. Because once you think you've got the moral high ground for doing immoral things, you'll just keep doing more and more immoral things and feeling more and more justified. By the way, those of you keeping track, this is also the same year that during the Meiji Restoration in, in Japan, we talked about that, the emperor who finally said, hey, we need to know stuff about the West, so I'll actually let missionaries in. So we've actually got a handful of missionaries that are working with the emperor to tell people about Christianity. Not because he's actually all that interested in Christianity, but because he's interested in understanding the West. It officially became illegal for a samurai to carry swords, which might seem like no big deal to you, but for over a thousand years, the samurai are this elite corps, and the swords are the symbol of their office. To the samurai, I and mean, they spent like a year making each sword. Each sword has a name, etc. So, since 1873, they've basically just been, you know, parade uh, trappings and things, because Meiji is trying very hard to have a modern army, a modern navy. He doesn't really need samurai. But now, the samurai couldn't even kill the people on the street for no reason. <laughs> that was one of their big things, is if I walk past, I'm samurai, and I walk past, uh, I, I walk past Eric, and Eric doesn't show me the deference that I think I'm due, I get to kill him. I mean, that's part of being samurai. Honor is everything. Please understand that when we say that, we tend to think in terms of samurai movies. And go, yes, they are honorable by our standards. They're honorable by their standards. It's a little different. So, if I say, you have dishonored me, so I'm going to kill you and take your wife. It's like, well, you're samurai. You get to do that. I don't get to do that anymore. The most I can do is say, stop it. It's a sad sign. Sad time to be a samurai. Sorry. I need a moment. <laughs> okay. 1878. The uh, prologue to the history of Israel gets published. If you remember, a little while ago we talked about a liberal theologian, Friedrich Schleiermacher. Given your name, really? <laughs> he argued that religion is really more of a mirror to ourselves than it is a window to the divine. It really points us more to what we were wanting to believe and what we think than it really does toward any kind of capital T truth out there. So you really ought to stop thinking of the Bible as the source of divine capital T truth Instead, see it as a product of our human creativity, our human essential morality. And you need to decide your interpretations and your applications based on that. Right? Once you decide that there is no capital T objective truth, then it's all a matter of what you feel. And if you admit that it's all about what you feel, then do what you feel. 
Just do the best versions of what you feel. But even then you say, well, how do you define what constitutes best version? Because apparently you can't use the Bible as a measure of best, because you just got finished saying it's not divine truth. So what do you do? Well, you just, what feels best? Anyway, building off of that sort of thinking, Julius Wellhausen, Wellhausen, wrote his Prolegomena to the History of Israel. Anybody know what the Prolegomena mean? Okay, a Prolegomenon is essentially just a prologue or an introduction to a book, but when a modern scholar uses the word Prolegomena, they're usually trying to be fancy, and they're usually trying to specifically say that they want to, cr to present a critical thought as they're looking at this book. So I'm going to write an introduction telling us that I'm going to look at this with a particular critical mindset. So he's like, I'm going to be, I'm going to walk into the history of Israel with a specific critical mindset. And his specific critical mindset was that instead of attributing the Pentateuch, those first five books, to Moses, we should probably assume layers of writers and editors over the years that each brought their own biases to the text. Because how could one person write this? Why would one person write this? If we've thrown out the idea that this is actually inspired by God, it has to have been a whole bunch of people. So, for instance, there was a Yahwist source writing probably about 950 B.C. or about 250 years after the death of Moses. And he's concerned about God's actions in human history. He wants to call him by name, Yahweh. And he refers to him by name. So pretty much any time you see a section where it uses the word Yahweh in Scripture, that's clearly being written by this hypothetical guy with an axe to grind. Because nobody puts anything in the Bible unless they've got an axe to grind. There's also an Elohim source writing about 100 years after that. Far more impersonal God. God doesn't interact with people. So you don't call him by name, you just call him God, Elohim. And so anytime that a section uses Elohim, it's clearly being written by that hypothetical guy with an axe to grind, right? And then there's the Deuteronomus source, writing about 150 years after that. Clearly trying to rally the people back to the law, which means it had to have been after the Babylonian exile. So he's clearly writing those portions of the Pentateuch after the Babylonian exile. Anything that talks about the law or the commands of God in those first five books is being written after the Babylonian exile by this hypothetical guy with an axe to grind. Yeah? So what about the times in the prophets, which were before the exile, where they're referring to Deuteronomy? Oh, there probably was a Deuteronomy. I, just, I don't know what was in it. <laughs> and then there's a priestly source, written about 100, 200 years after that, focusing on what you know all priests do, which is managing and controlling people. That's what priests do. So, anytime that a section talks about priests, or makes lists, or gives religious direction, or anytime that God is being shown to be harsh or unmerciful, because that's what priests do, clearly it's being written by this hypothetical guy with an axe to grind. Right? So, if you look at the Bible this way, then yes, the, yeah, it was interesting finding this particular graphic. But if you look at the Bible this way, it's clear that the books were never divinely inspired. It's not written by a godly man or a woman here or there. No, no. Clearly, it's a progressive, constantly edited product of successions of men with their own little t-truths. Right? Because it's not like it's a big t-truth. It's all these little t-truths. Whatever feels good to you. Whatever felt good to them. Do you understand how this particular documentary hypothesis helps to justify that line of thinking. 
It's not from God. It's just us, just being creative. And it changes constantly. By the way, um, to the liberal theologian then, the Christian should read the Bible with a critical eye. Don't read it like it's gospel or anything. Decide your own interpretations of your own little t-truths. Now we're back to that idea of it being a mirror to you, not a window to God. Not that this is a bad thing when we say it, but there is always a little bit of the danger to this. Anytime we have a Bible study and somebody says, what does this verse mean to you? Again, sometimes that's just shorthand for what do you think this verse means? But that is technically, grammatically a little bit more careful wording. What do you believe, as you understand things, that this verse means? Because the verse means something. As opposed to, what does it mean to you? Because the verse itself doesn't mean something except what's going on in your head. I'm not, again, I'm not saying that's a horrible phrase. I'm just saying, think about the different perspectives on, are you trying to wrap your head around what that verse itself intrinsically means? Or are you trying to figure out what you feel when you read that verse? What's the more important thing to you? Now, bear in mind, that gets complicated because it should create a personal interaction with you, and verses have layers and layers and layers of meaning. I'm just saying, which is first, the cart or the horse? This is the same sort of source criticism that's used by the Jesus Seminar in 1985. When they, how many people have heard of the Jesus Seminar? Okay, they decided which things of the Bible Jesus clearly said and clearly didn't say. So they got red and black colored beads, and they voted to figure out, you wrote red if you think Jesus clearly said it, you wrote vote black if you say clearly didn't say it, and if there's differences of opinion, you're going to have pink or gray, depending on who voted or how many people voted which direction. So you got to, you got to figure this out based on some, some criteria that they already decided. For instance, self-references. If Jesus ever speaks about himself in a verse, like if he ever says something like, I am the way, the truth, and life, it's clearly inauthentic because Jesus doesn't refer to himself like that. You don't refer to yourself like that. I don't ever talk about myself. You don't talk about yourself. Jesus didn't talk about himself. Clearly. Right? Community issues. If Jesus ever speaks about something that the church is going to end up facing, it's clearly not authentic. Because it's clearly later church leaders writing words and putting them back in Jesus' mouth to justify themselves. Right? By the way, if there's theological conformity, if Jesus ever speaks about stuff that Paul also talks about, it's clearly inauthentic, because it's obviously just a later writer trying to harmonize him with Paul. And this applies to pretty much anything else Jesus says about the church or about early church fathers or that agrees with secular authorities. Anytime he's saying anything that agrees with anything else, it's clearly inauthentic. So it's all black, right? No, no, no. Because no. sometimes he said stuff. <laughs> but Jesus was, by definition, a rebel. So anything that he says that in any way isn't rebellious is inauthentic. Right? Okay. So if he's theologically conformist, that's not Jesus. If he's theologically nonconformist, that's not Jesus. If Jesus ever speaks about stuff that's only found in one gospel... Clearly, it's inauthentic, because it was just that gospel writer writing it. It's just their idea. If there's a framing sequence, if Jesus ever speaks to introduce even stuff that we've already decided is authentic. So if he ever starts, if he ever starts talking about stuff, okay, if he, if he tells a, 
a, a, a crazy parable about a good Samaritan. Then all that stuff where he's talking to a Pharisee about, you know, love thy neighbor, that's obviously inauthentic because it's just framing to make the other story smoother narratively, right? Yeah. So, if there's anything logically that depends on stuff that we've already thrown out, we need to throw that out too. So if you say, well, you can't throw that out, this part references that part. You don't, well, then you've got to throw this part out too because it's, it's inauthenticity based on inauthenticity. So here's a good example of how the Bible should probably be read. This is the Lord's Prayer, right? Of which the only words Jesus actually said were our Father because nobody would have ever said our Father back then. Right? Now there's some pink stuff here. Stuff, there's a chance he probably might have said because it's funky. It's a little doubtful. There's some gray stuff here. Please don't subject us to test after test. But that whole thing of our Father in the heavens, no, that's where other people thought God was. Now, clearly he didn't say that. And act your will on earth as you have in heaven. Again, you're referencing heaven. You're talking about us having to do stuff. No, clearly Jesus never said that. Rescue us from the evil one. No, that whole devil, hell, sin thing. That's all a creation of later writers. So, clearly, let's all say the Lord's Prayer together. Our Father, stop there, that's it. <laughs> I should comment before I leave Wellenhausen that even Wellenhausen realized his perspective on the Bible was corrosive to faith. He, he, he wrote, you know, I realize as a theology teacher, my part of my job is to prepare people for ministry, and I'm actually doing the opposite of that. So I should probably resign my post because I'm stinky at this. Yeah. So he resigned his post because he realized he really couldn't helpfully prepare pastors for ministry because he was making people doubt the very Bible that they were preaching. Luckily, there are other people out there who are committed to the Bible and helping people understand it, like Mary Baker Eddy. <laughs> she was committed to that Bible. Stop laughing at her. And marriage. Remember she had this whole debate with Victoria Woodhull last week about marriage and the institution of marriage and why marriage is important. You need to be biblical about this and God honoring. Stop laughing at Mary Baker Eddy. She's born in New Hampshire. She felt like called by God at an early age. Even though she didn't know what she was called for, she just knew that she was called. But she didn't know what the voice was saying. She was also extremely sickly, was tutored at home by her brother Albert, and her devoutly Christian mother helped her heal herself. She prayed and prayed, and all of her sicknesses went away to the astonishment of all of her doctors, because the doctors couldn't do anything with all their medications, because you guys are all quacks, right? Yeah. <laughs> but she prayed herself to health. So ultimately, she realized that so many people misunderstood the Bible, that in 1875, she wrote completely on her own, she wrote, uh, Science and Health with Key to the Scriptures, a book showing the Bible's true teachings on the nature of sickness and sin. 1879, so many people had been blessed by that, that she started up her own church in Boston, the Church of Christ, because everybody was starting Churches of Christ, right? Almost every church in, in, in the 19th century starts with Church of Christ, comma, wacky. You know, this is a, I mean, that's it. Church of Christ of Latter-day Saints. Church of Christ, scientist. You know, this you got to say, Church of Christ, and here's how we're different. So, Church of Christ, scientist, to, quote, commemorate the word and works of our master, 
which should reinstate primitive Christianity and its lost element of healing. Unquote. Now, this isn't entirely true. What I just told you there is actually probably not entirely accurate. First off, yes, she was sickly as a child and as an adult. She stayed sickly. She was sickly her whole thing in life. She was, even though she, she crusaded against any kind of use of any kind of physicians, she was constantly taking medications. She had a huge medicines cabinet filled with medications. She actually got addicted to morphine by the end of her life because she was constantly taking all sorts of medications, including morphine, constantly having all sorts of doctors work with her, but refused to tell her church this. So nobody in the church realized that she was constantly still going to doctors. And she said, oh yes, this book is the distillation of everything that God has shown me. Uh, I would say it's more like a word-for-word -word copying of other people's work. Because she did. She copied from Emmanuel Swedenborg. She copied from healer Phineas Quimby, who's a contemporary of hers. She copied from Labor, uh, uh, yeah, Labor's uh, synopsis of Georg Hegel's philosophy. I love this. For Hegel and his true disciples, there is no truth, substance, life, or intelligence and matter. All is infinite mind. She writes, there is no life, truth, intelligence, or substance in matter. All is infinite mind. Does that sound familiar? Hegel science brings to light truth and its supremacy, universal harmony, God's entirety, and matter's nothingness. Christian science brings to light truth and its supremacy, universal mind, and the entireness of God, good, and the nothingness of evil. Word for stinking word. My favorite one is actually this. Um, from uh, Lindley Murray's 1823 book, The English Reader, and Mary Baker's Miscellaneous Writings. If you look at it, it's almost exactly word for word. The man of integrity is one who makes it his constant rule to follow the road of duty according to the word of God. The man of integrity is one who makes his constant rule to follow the road of duty according to the truth and the voice of his conscience. The upright man is guided by a fixed principle of mind which determines him to esteem nothing. The upright man is guided by a fixed principle which destines him to do nothing but what is honorable. He assumes no borrowed appearance. He assumes no borrowed appearance. He never shows us smiling countenance while he never shows us smiling countenance while he's Word for work. Oh, well. Well, multiple people's works into this incomprehensible mess. I've, I've read Science and Health several times, and I confess, I usually get about a third of the way through it, and, and I get a headache. Because it doesn't make sense. Part of it is because she's saying wacky stuff, and part of it is she's saying cut-and-paste wacky stuff. You get cut-and-pasting. Try cut-and-pasting a movie. Take a little bit from Star Wars, take a little bit from Shawshank Redemption, snap together and go, movie! You'll get a headache. But it does have one clear, consistent message. She says, here is found the cardinal point in Christian science that matter and evil, including all in harmony, disease, sin, and death, are unreal. None of that is real. Everything that hurts us, everything that taints us, everything that draws us away from God, none of that is real. It doesn't exist. And Barclay got a Christian who came up with something like this, is rolling in his grave going, that's not what I meant. If God is everywhere, then everything logically has to be in God, right? And therefore, the only sin is in not realizing that you're already just fine with God. Because is God everywhere? Then you are already in God, right? So God isn't everywhere. Or you are in God. And if you're in God, then everything's fine. This is called controlling the definitions. But if people think that they're sick, or that their limbs are broken, or that anything material outside of God even exists in the first place, they are in error. You're not really hurt because you don't got an arm. You don't got lungs that got tuberculosis. It doesn't work like that. 
To get rid of sin, she says, to get rid of sin through science is to divert sin of any supposed mind or reality. You conquer error by denying its verity, its truthfulness. Or, we acknowledge God's forgiveness of sin and the destruction of sin. We remove sin. Not we take the sin that actually exists away from human beings, but we help them to understand there was never any sin to begin with. And the spiritual understanding that casts out evil as unreal. But the belief in sin is public punished as long as the belief lasts. You will feel guilt so long as you think you have something to feel guilty about. So how you God? He's the mind, the great all-encompassing thought. And we are part of that thought. We're part of God's thoughts. Do you not believe that God thought about creating you? I'm sorry. So did you believe in Jesus Absolutely. Mary communed with God, and her perfect thought about his perfect thinking produced Jesus, who was the perfect example of thought, which we all are. Yes, what were you saying, Mike? I do have a headache. Headache! I'm telling you! <laughs> yeah, I got a headache already. I was just, I was wondering if this was influenced by the trend of this. Interesting. Possibly. I hadn't thought about that. But, Your broken arm, no, okay, no, uh, your broken arm will hurt as long as you mistakenly think you have a broken arm. Which means, it is the ultimate example of something that, like, even a lot of prosperity doctrine teachers will teach, which is, as long as you lack faith, you're still going to be sick. If you're struggling physically, it's because you lack faith. So the prosperity doctrine is, because you've got to believe that Jesus wants to heal you all the stinking time, wants you as physically comfortable as is physically possible. To the Christian scientists, it's, you have to have faith to believe that God would never ha let you have a broken arm in the first place. So just scientists calling a doctor or taking medications would be the exact opposite of what Christ would want to do because it gives you the erroneous idea, the sinful idea, that you have a physical being to doctor or medicate in the first place. If I go to the doctor and say, here's my broken arm, please help my broken arm, I'm constantly reminding myself I have a broken arm, aren't I? That's the worst thing I can do. That's why part of the tenets of faith include we acknowledge that the crucifixion of Jesus and his resurrection served to uplift faith, to understand eternal life, and even the allness of soul, spirit, and the nothingness of matter. Sin, sickness, and death are to be classified as the effects of error. Christ came to destroy the belief in sin. Because he sat there and said, there is no cross. There is no physical body. I'm not afraid of any of this. Right? Do you agree? Do you agree? Oh, it's totally neo-Gnosticism. Do you agree that Jesus said that this body, this life, isn't all there is, and, and so for the joy set before me, I'm going to endure this physical cross? Then you agree with Christian science, right? The physical. Do you think that physicality is transitory? That your real self is spiritual? Yes. Then you agree with Christian science, right? Just take one more step and say this physical transitory thing doesn't even exist in the first place. I don't agree with Christian science. <laughs> Thus, when we die, you don't actually die, because death is unreal. We, like Jesus showed us on that illusory cross, because matter is unreal, simply realize that we have and always have been part of God. Right? So there you go. Today there's, there's 85,000 practicing, probably, 85,000 practicing Christian scientists in the world, including Val Kilmer, actor, who recently didn't get a throat tumor treated because of his Christian science views. But Mary Baker Eddy's manual of the Mother Church forbids publishing membership statistics so we don't really know. Because membership statistics would be counting tangible things and there are no tangible things. So 
or just let people know how few of them there actually are. Shouldn't they, shouldn't they like stop publishing the book then? What book? Okay, <laughs> <laughs> uh, historically, one of the church's fiercest opponents was uh, was a writer. Did anybody know what writer was the, was the church's fiercest? Mark Twain. Hated Christian science. Uh, Twain became very embittered later in life after his wife, uh, Libby, died in 1904. She'd been sick for a very long time with a very debilitating illness. She was in pain and weak a great deal. And he's like, I can't believe in a God that would let somebody suffer like this. So, how is a religion that says, she wasn't suffering? That's just lack of faith on her part. There is no pain, there is no suffering, there is no sickness. If she had faith, she wouldn't do that. Tell that to a guy like Mark Twain. You do not want to flip a switch on this guy. This is not the guy to do that for. So, he considers Eddie to be a greedy, selfish, plagiarizing fraud. He writes a big thing. Oh, I should have brought it. It's sitting in my office. Big, thick book. Extremely scholarly. Lots of footnotes. Lots of documentation. It doesn't feel like a Mark Twain book at all. You know, where Mark Twain's always, eh, I'm going to say something a little snarky. No, it's like Kingdom of the Cults, but only about this one. Slams her shreds her. Then again, he didn't like Christianity much either. Uh, by the end of his life, he wrote, there is one notable thing about our Christianity. Bad, bloody, merciless, money-grabbing, and predatory as it is. In our country, particularly, and in all other Christian countries, in a somewhat modified degree, it's still a hundred times better than the Christianity of the Bible, with its prodigious crime, the invention of hell. Measured by our Christianity of today, bad as it is, hypocritical as it is, empty and hollow as it is, neither the deity nor his son is a Christian, nor qualified for that moderately high place. Ours is a terrible religion. The fleets of the world could swim in spacious comfort in the innocent blood it has spilled. Again, not a guy to flip a switch on. Very angry about Christianity. Ironically, his daughter became a Christian scientist after his oh, death. Wow. Uh, I wonder if her interest in it was part of why he was so It's possible, but I, I it's possible. He never wrote about it like that and she didn't I mean she, she became a Christian scientist like decades after he I don't know. I don't know. I I, I, I couldn't speak to that. That's a good question. All which leads us to the Anglo-Zulu War. No, it doesn't. But I got to go to the Anglo-Zulu War. It happened in the same in the same year, and it's kind of important. When we talk about the British fighting the Zulu in South Africa, you can have some preconceived notions. When I say that, we tend to think of the British having rifles and the Zulu just having spears, and so we say it's going to be a row, right? Because you got rifles versus spears. You got you know pistols with six shots or five shots in it. Um, or we can assume it's just another example of white imperialists against African defenders. I mean, they're just defending their homeland, right? Neither of these is actually accurate in this particular case. Remember back in 1816, we talked about Shaka, who killed his brother to take control of the Zulu? Maybe you don't. I do. Anyway, a missionary once told Shaka that if he accepted Christ, gave his heart to God, he could avoid the fires of damnation. And Shaka said, around here, we eat fire. Because that's the kind of guy Shaka was. Killed his own brother to take control. It was like, yeah, no, yeah. Shaka's favorite guy in the world was Shaka. So, <laughs> under Shaka's rule, they changed their entire fighting style. They changed all the stuff about the Zulu. For instance, 
He downplayed the use of long spears, which is what they'd always use, long spears that you throw. He's like, no, short spears called asagai. This is what we're going to use. Now, you can still have a long spear, and we can still throw it under certain circumstances, but we're going to, instead of a little, a, a little shield and a long spear, we have a big shield and a short spear. Independently came up with what the Romans came up with, about having javelins but also short swords. This idea of saying, what we're going to do is focus on hand-to-hand. -hand. We're going to intimidate people. So he has very complex mass strategies, all sorts of different things. I mean, very complex, uh, we're going to move this army here and flank with this army. We're going to hide back here and then jump out. Very complex things, but ultimately all coming down to, I'm going to throw thousands of Zulu at you in your face. In fact, that's the reason that the, the, the big uh, shield is he, he taught them how to, to run up so, at somebody, turn to the right, hook the, the shield, the left side of their shield on the, on the uh, left side of the other people's shield, pull them this way and stab, and then, and then go that way and just slaughter people in droves. So, little itty bitty Zulu nation over here turns into a really big Zulu nation as they conquer all the other tribes, slaughter other tribes all over the place. Everybody down there was terrified of the Zulu. Slaughtered thousands from other tribes, thirst for conquest. I say all this to say that the Anglo-Zulu War was really more like two different empires clashing over land that belonged to neither. So, um, though I'm not going to excuse the British for other things that they did in Africa, this is one of these things where you go, this is, this is uh, Germany and Russia fighting over who gets Poland. Just go... Are we even talking about the Poles? Uh, nope. Poles are just cannon fodder. Anyway, the fighting was by no means one-sided. Not that the British were automatically going to win. At the Battle of Itzantlana on, uh, on uh, January 22nd of that year, 1,800 British soldiers, soldiers are overrun by 22,000 or, or twenty to 22,000 Zulu. That's going to be significant, right? Because you got good rifles, but they're single shot. I mean, you shoot, and that, that expend the cartridge. You shoot and shove another one in. It's breech loader. It's quick, but it's still single shot. That's okay if there's a hundred uh, British soldiers or a thousand British soldiers and a hundred or a thousand Zulu. But when you've got people who have no equipment that jingles or anything that are really good at sneaking up, so you're you're sitting there waiting, and all of a sudden, twenty thousand Zulu pop up right in front of you. That's, you know, you're going to have a 10 to 1 odds right in front of you. How quickly can you fire? Add to that that, I don't know if you're familiar with the British, but they kind of stick clear uh, on their standard operating procedures. For instance, you were, you were officially requisitioned, um, your, your, your officially requisitioned your cartridges, but if you needed more, you had to go and sign paperwork with the quartermaster to get more rounds, of which he can give you four at any given time. So, so something about that. It's like I'm being overrun by Zulu. Give me more. Give me more bullets. And he goes, fill out this paperwork, and I'll give you four. Now everybody is going to that same quartermaster saying, I need more bullets, and he says, I just get in a line, fill out the paperwork, and I'll give you four. That's just one example. That's just one example. So, fighting devolved very quickly down to hand-to-hand -hand combat, rifle butts versus Asagai. Let me go back to saying the Zulu had shields and trained all day every day with the Asagai. British soldiers were really pretty good. They weren't that good. 
So nearly all of the British got lost in this one day of fighting. It is the single largest defeat by a modern army of a native tribe in history. England was not happy about that. The next day, 3,000 of those Zulu led uh, an attack on 100 British soldiers at a tiny little mission station called Rourke's Drift. So picture this. You've heard. Actually, you, they were close enough to Asambulana they could actually hear the battle. And they heard what happened. And they begged for a relief column. And the relief column didn't come because the relief column just got axed at Asambulana. You're it. You're 100 guys. And you're the only thing between the Zulu and moving on in South Africa. So you can't retreat. You can't go anywhere. And 3,000 of the Zulu are coming there. The other several thousand are going to move on and wrap around. But these guys are going to wipe out your command. Picture morale. Oh, by the way, the two officers in charge, colonels, got killed at Assemble 1. Two officers in charge, lieutenants, lieutenants. Neither of which had ever seen combat. The senior one was an engineer. Never seen combat for anything. Had never done it. Never fired a shot. But he's an engineer. He's like, I read books. I know how to fortify a position. So we're going to do everything they didn't do at San Luana. All this outline stuff, who cares? We're going to pull back together. We're going to, we're going to stand really close to one another. We're going to dip, you know, dump over all the wagons and hide behind them. We're going to free access to ammunition. Quartermasters, just bring all the ammunition boxes and rip them open. Anybody who needs ammunition, just grab some. We're going to use strict anti-siege tactics. There are some classic things that even Da Vinci told us we needed to do if we were forcing, facing a larger enemy. We're going to do that kind of stuff. They held the Zulu off for more than a full day. The Zulu wiped through Isandlawana, 1,800 soldiers. They got stopped by these guys for a full day. At the end of which, the Zulu saluted them and left. Eleven Victoria Crosses were awarded that day. That's the highest, that's Congressional Medal of Honor. You go, there's a hundred guys. One in ten of you gets a Congressional Medal of Honor that day. Now, granted, British government really needed a good guy after Salomon. They really needed some heroes. And yet, when you read about some of the stuff they did at Works Drift, you go, this was amazing, some of the things that they ended up doing, the bravery that these guys had. I mean, don't get me wrong, the Zulu did some amazing things too, but it was historically heroic, the stance that these guys made. It was like it was like the flip side of, of the Alamo. And you're just like, wait, you survived the Alamo? How'd that work? The Zulu chief, Tetuayo, was ultimately deposed. And then reinstated. Because the British got rid of them, and then there were all sorts of tribal problems, and problems with the Dutch insurgents in the area. And so they went, wait, Tetuayo was actually keeping things stable. Let's put him back in charge. Just, you're working for us now. Tetuayo's like, yeah, okay. <laughs> Ultimately, though, he got toppled by infighting within the Zulu leadership. Specifically, uh, one of his heirs, Usibepu, uh, destroyed Chichwa's village and killed him. Ultimately, killed him, chased him out. Anyway. Um, so the Zulu kind of got crumpled from within. Which leads to the First Boer War. Since it's the First Boer War, I mean, there's clearly going to be a second one. But anyway. Seeing that the British forces had been weakened by the Zulu War, the Dutch farmers, i.e. Boers, that was the word for farmers in, in Dutch. So the Boers, who populated South Africa, rose up in rebellion against England, saying, hey, we got a shot here. We can actually do this. And they were supported by the Dutch Orange Free State over here. Named after 
Pardon me? William of Orange. I told you, this guy keeps coming up, right? Every, you get just about everything orange points back to this guy. The Dutch King of England, that both the Dutch and the English liked. Yay! Anyway, so, the Dutch Orange Free State uh, helps them out, and much like with the American Revolution, um, the Boers said, oh, we don't have a lot of our guys, and uh, we're really good shots, so why would we go to the field next to you guys? We're just going to hide behind rocks and trees and stuff and shoot at you. Especially since you have such pretty red uniforms. We can't hardly miss you guys. We're going to dress in the same color as rocks and stuff. You, you, it's like you got a target on your actual uniform. White straps, white helmets, red shirts, black pants, so that the red stands out. Yeah, this is great. By the way, the Zulu and Boer Wars were the last time that England wore the classic red coats. Because they went, this is so not working out for us. It's working. It's so good. They did, didn't they? It looks so good. Yes, especially when you prop them up one after another on the ground after a battle. <laughs> so they decided to go with khaki. Also, like the American Revolution, the British said, you know, it would actually be more cost effective if we just stopped fighting. How about we just make friends with South Africa and give them some degree of independence? And so for the first time, South Africa had its own self-government. It was part of the British Commonwealth. So they still, unlike the, that's the thing, Britain went, we lost America completely. We're not going to lose South Africa completely. You're still part of the British Commonwealth. Still going to, you know, praise the Queen and stuff, right? Yeah, sure, okay. Great. This, this works. <laughs> And for the first time, the new constitution institutionalized racism, segregating black Africans from white Africans. I just spent a day earlier this week with a couple of, of white South African uh, people who are considering moving to the United States, and so it was very interesting interacting with them and respectfully disagreeing on some things. The modern incarnation of South Africa, these racist laws became known as apartheid, meaning literally aparthood starting in 1948. How many people have heard of apartheid? Yeah, good. Legislation classified inhabitants into four racial groups, black people, white people, colored people, and Indian people. Colored people are biracial. So, um, as I was explaining to the, to the gentleman on Tuesday, perhaps not a good word to be using in the United States. It has different connotations. Because they kept talking about colored people. <laughs> As of 1970, non-white South Africans were denied the right to political representation. You don't need political representation, we got this, thank you. Just, you couldn't track with it anyway. Later that same year, blacks were deprived of citizenship. You're not a citizen of South Africa, you're a citizen of the Zulu nation, you're a citizen of the, of the Hutu nation, you're a citizen of all these things. Because that's the best way that you can be represented, is in your own tribes, right? Only white people are technically citizens of South Africa. That's for your benefit, right? Non-whites are segregated to their own areas, their own public services, their own beaches, their own schools, which were horrible, by the way. It, again, much like in, in America at different times, it's presented as, oh, you'd want to have your own things. You'd want to be by yourself. You'd want to have your own sense of community. It's like, A, not necessarily. B, I kind of like the option. And C, the version of this you gave me is cruddy. You gave me really bad beaches. You gave me... Horrible public services. Our schools are falling apart. 
which is particularly offensive when you realize that the white population is, what, 10% at the, at the highest point, like 15% of the population? So it's not like, well, they were half white, half black. No, it's a tiny little sliver of the population. So starting in 1990, President DeClerc fought to end apartheid in, in South Africa alongside Nelson Mandela, who became the first black president. And, and, and I was talking with Nikki earlier about this. In this context, I have to specify white and black, because she's like, well, wouldn't the blacks consider themselves Africans? Like, so do the whites. Like, I've been here for 400 years. I'm as African as anybody. So when you talk about African, it means different things at different times. In this case, I cannot talk about Africans versus white people, because they're all Africans. They all see themselves as equally African. But the nation now elects this long-imprisoned activist, Nelson Mandela, 1994, the end of official apartheid. There is a drawback, though. Nelson wasn't bad, but there's a drawback to hiring people whose leadership qualifications are primarily activists, even terrorists. <clears throat> I'm not going to say that things went better under the, the white rule. What I'm going to say is Nelson was good. Not every leader since him has necessarily been good. For instance, the current president, Jacob Zuma, Outspoken Christian. Loves to tell people that the second coming is coming and all the sinners are going to burn in hell. Um, he has ten wives. He has half a dozen children through various mistresses. He's barely survived a rape charge recently. And he has over 750 outstanding charges of corruption and mismanagement of state funds against him right now. Various people have tried to impeach him. He's just stuck in there and won't go anywhere. Again, perhaps... I was an activist is not the best resume builder for I should be president. You're on the right side. It doesn't necessarily mean you're doing it the right way. Politically, the predominantly black African National Congress Party, the ANC, vies with the basically white Democratic Alliance Party. So there you have the leader of the Democratic Alliance Party is now black. But he's like the only black guy in the entire party. If that doesn't scream tokenism, anyway. Um, so these two parties are the ones that are really vying with one another, but they also have the South African Communist Party that neither of those groups like. And they also have the ethnically Zulu Inkata Freedom Party, which is being led by Zulu chief Butelezi. Help me out here. How would that kind of disparate take on leadership work in the United States? Because we're talking, we're not talking about Democrats and Republicans. We're not talking about conservatives and liberals. We're talking about a predominantly white party versus a predominantly black party versus communists who say, let's overthrow the government in general. And then a group that says, black nothing, we're Zulu. I, I don't look at the color of your skin. I look at what tribe are you part of. How well do these parties work together? I would think not very well. If you were in the United States and you said, okay, there's the... The, the four major parties are the Republican Party, the Democratic Party, the Let's Burn Everything Party, and the We're Italian Party. <laughs> you go, okay, can I ask you Italians a question? Sure. Are you, like, conservative or are you liberal? We're Italian. I got that from the name Italian Party. But over here, I mean, these guys are going to vote for this bill because it's conservative, and these guys are going to fight against this bill because it's conservative, what are you guys, what are you going to do? How does it benefit Italians? 
the dwarves are for the dwarves. How does this benefit the dwarves? How does this benefit the Italians? But I'm thinking conservative versus liberal, and you're thinking ethnicity. You're for the Italians and against everybody else, right? Well, it's only fair because that's the Irish party over there. So it's like, this is the thing. How do you, oh, I'm Irish. I get to do that. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? It, that sort of disparate stuff doesn't work over there. And it would, when we try to transplant that into an American mindset, you can see why. You can just go, there's no way you could find common ground all the way across the board. Not only because you're on opposite ends of the spectrum, but you're on different spectra. You know, I'm conservative. You're liberal. I'm thinking one on the scale, you're thinking ten on the scale, and I look at, I already talked about you, I look at, at, at Donna and Donna, I say one, Emily says ten, and Donna says purple. <laughs> <laughs> and I say, okay, uh, Ross here, what do you think? And Ross just starts singing. This is like, could we all please, could we even just get on the same spectrum? <laughs> so today, South Africa is dealing with skyrocketing inflation. I mean, the rand against the United the US dollar is doing horribly. And the US dollar is doing horribly. So do the math on that. Um, they're dealing with high violent crime rates. Most neighborhoods are now blocked off. If you have any kind of a decent house at all, you build a thick wall with broken glass on the top of it around it. You got student unrest at the universities, which is why uh, this family was trying to move to the United States. Right now, students are demanding free college tuition. Because they're saying, completely rightly, that for generations, white students are about the only people that have ever had access to this. And that's not fair. So we need free college tuition. And when the government said, tell you what, we'll, we'll cap the college fees and we'll try to figure this out, they began burning the schools, burning things, and saying, shouting, burn to be heard. Which is not the best way to get your free college tuition. No. <laughs> to, burn, to burn your school. Um, well, and, and, the, and, the, and the government's argument is there's like a 70% dropout rate. We don't want to spend all of our money on people that are just going to drop out. Uh, as we were talking, Peoria is dealing with this like with ICC and the Peoria Promise thing. They're like, how do we restructure this? Because we keep throwing money at this and then people keep dropping out. How about we do it where we reimburse you if you actually complete the year or we do this? Um, so you could be praying for South Africa because they're trying to find their way. Um, and, and, they're, and they're really struggling at the moment. And unfortunately, this is quietly to me the most unfortunate part of this. Unfortunately to me, I'll, well, I'll say this two parts. It's getting wound up with Christianity. Are you a good Christian? If you're a good Christian, then you will stand against this sort of native violence. Or if you're a good Christian, you will care about the individual, you will care about people, therefore, you will support our activist cause. So are you a good Christian? By the way, if you're on our side, you're a good Christian. If you're on their side, you're not. And both sides are saying that sort of thing. Number one. No? Pardon me? That's a loaded question. That's a totally loaded question. People love totally loaded questions. Oh, yeah. What was it Ambrose Bierce used to say? The world is made up of, the, of two kinds of people, the righteous and the unrighteous. The categorization is made by the righteous. So, so over here, it's, it, all this is being wound up together. Theology, politics, race, all is one big, ugly, emotional mess. And, and instead of trying to find the wise answer, come on, let's try to get on one continuum, one spectrum. It's all 
I'm going to be on this spectrum, I'm going to be on this spectrum, I'm going to be on this spectrum, and if you were a Christian, you'd be on this spectrum with me. Um, that, and the fact, <laughs> quietly, this is, I guess, what bothers me even more, is in some ways it begins to justify exactly the, the horrific intolerance of racism that they had for, for the longest time, because they're like, well, see what happens? It's like, no, 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 heavens, no, no. You're learning the wrong thing here. You're picking up the wrong thing. This is not a problem because of race. This is a problem because you have kept a people group institutionally down for centuries. And especially for a good solid 50 years, I mean, you totally denied them citizenship, denied them everything. This is horrific. So that the entire world came against you and said, you've got to stop this. You gave them horrible education. You encouraged tribalism and tribal infighting. And then you put those guys in charge. This is not a race issue. This is a, you created a hard situation. And now you're saying, since we painted you in this corner, look at you stuck in the corner. It's a horror. So please, be praying for South Africa, because they're really struggling now. It was complicated navigating that with my guests on, on Tuesday and trying to, to walk through that carefully, respectfully. But respectfully. 1880, Ben-Hur, Tale of the Christ, is published. Yes! We're going to end on something good. Lukewarm Christian, Lou Wallace. Remember Lou Wallace? It's the guy who, back in 1864, stopped Jubal Early's assault on Washington so that Grant had time to come and catch up and defend the city. Yay, Lou Wallace! Yay! Okay, anyway. He was on a train debating theology with a fellow veteran, an agnostic named Robert Ingersoll. And he was dismayed to find that Ingersoll actually knew more about Christianity and the Bible than he did. I don't know if any of you have run into this. This happens. But as Christians, we don't always know our stuff. We get so familiar with it, we don't really know it very well. But we're generally familiar. We don't have to read it. We're generally familiar with it. It's like watching 50s westerns and saying, I understand the old west. Ben Cartwright. Um, but Ingersoll said, oh, what about this? What about this? What about this? What about this? To which Wallace is like, so he dedicated himself to studying history, to studying the Bible. He's like, I want to know about this stuff. Ended up writing a best-selling novel in his off hours as military governor of New Mexico. Because he was military governor of New Mexico. And every night he'd go back and, and write. And as a result, ended up converting himself to Christianity in the process. He's been, oh, I've, I've gone to church sometimes when I was a kid. I generally consider myself a Christian. And as he studied the Bible, he's like, I haven't been a Christian at all. I've never had a relationship with Christ and now I do. Became a devout Christian. Not necessarily a church member, but a devout Christian. Consciously made use of the basic plot of the very popular Count of Monte Cristo, which is all about an innocent man wrongly imprisoned for years who wanted revenge on his former friends, right? By the way, Ben-Hur is all about an innocent man wrongly imprisoned for years who wanted revenge on his friend. <laughs> there you go. Oh, I love that book. Anyway, in a conscious inversion of the Count of Monte Cristo, though, Wallace's hero would learn that revenge isn't the way to go. Edmund Dante's finds out, finds out revenge rocks it. You know, I'm totally taking my revenge. And at the end, he's like, and now I can be happy. I got revenge on everybody. I'm going to go off with my, my, my princess, and we're going to have a happy life at the end. Because I, I got the bad guys. Ben-Hur... Sure. Oh, there are. 
part. But I mean, in general, even even though he's like, it gives me no pleasure, he's like, but I'm still doing it. And at the end, I'm like, I'm totally doing this all the way through. I'm taking out the last guy, and then I'm going off with my princess. And her realizes, you know what? No. I've spent all these years wanting revenge, and I shouldn't take it because of crucial intersections with Christ. He keep, his life keeps intersecting with Christ's life at crucial moments. He keeps finding Christ and getting little bits and snippets of things, and eventually, at the end of the book, follows Christ for an extended period of time. The book is extremely controversial, because up to that point, nobody had written a novel with Jesus as a main character. And yet the publishers were like, eh, and they read it, and they went, oh, no, this is good. Oh, we like this. became a best-selling American book of the 19th century, second only to the Bible itself. Thousands of people said that the book changed their lives, brought them to Christ, encouraged them to, to release bitterness, it encouraged them to become missionaries. It changed them. It became this award-winning stage play in 1899 that lasted for over 20 years. It was a hit for 20 years. It got made into multiple big screen adaptations. Yes, John Heston, that's the, the, the most faithful adaptation of all of them, even though it, it kind of collapses a bunch of different things, but in general keeps the tone of different things together. Um, the, uh, the one that was made for, for TV, there's a miniseries, they're famous for sexing it up a bit because, you know, bringing out the sex from the novel, which I, I don't recall. <laughs> Um, I have not seen the new one, but Richard uh, Lee says, no, it's actually really good. Well, I've never read the book or seen any other adaptations, but it's actually really good. So I trust Richard, and yet even Richard admittedly says, I have no idea about the context of it. So, you know, watch it at your own risk. I haven't seen it, so I, I can't say. But how important does this suggest mass media is? How does it change public opinion? We talked about this with Birth of a Nation, right? How important was uh, Uncle Tom's Cabin? Uh, in, in, the, in the abolitionist movement. And this book eclipsed the sales of Uncle Tom's Cabin. So how important did this book become in terms of, under, of people's understanding of things? That it has had this many adaptations, it's gotten this much into people's faces. We've said it before, and it's unfortunate that to many people it's not so much truth as much as a good story that moves them. How important then is it for us to give them both? A good story that is actually gripping, but truth that actually changes. Speaking of, the next year, the Mahdi came on the scene to lead Islam, giving them a really good story. Pick that up next week, and we'll talk about the most classic modern clash of Christians versus Muslims. And if that isn't germane to our modern context, I don't know what is, because the Mahdi led an army to conquer the entire world should be familiar to you, especially since ISIS comes out of the exact same movement that he did. Would you pray with me? Dear Lord, I thank you so much. I thank you that even in a world where truth is constantly changing, your truth never changes. And so I pray, Lord, help us. Help us not to be Christians who abandon our own Bible, or cultists who hold on to the Bible but twist it, or people who try to wrap the Bible around our own political or socio-political ends. I pray, Lord, help us to be exegetes. Help us to start with your word, to live out your word, and end with your word. Help us to glorify you in all that we say and do. I give you this in Jesus' name. Amen.